Welcome to From Crisis to Prevention, Powerful Stories for Change, a podcast by RentSmart. Every episode, we'll be talking with people who are working upstream to prevent housing instability and homelessness across Canada. Working upstream in the prevention space is key to building vibrant communities. And we are your hosts, Jess and Beth. episode, we sit down to talk to the Peer Housing Support Project team from the Greater Victoria Coalition to End Homelessness. The Peer Housing Support Project is a community-driven solution to bring those transitioning from homelessness to housing together with experiential peer supporters. Peer supporters provide a range of support and assist peers in navigating available resources, thus promoting success in the transition to stable housing. The program was designed by and for people with lived experiences of homelessness and continues to be guided by the Peer Housing and Support Advisory Committee. Stay tuned to hear more about the importance of peer support and how it should be a core component to supporting people transitioning from homelessness to housing, and also tips on implementing a similar program in your community. so much um, for coming and being on the podcast today. I think maybe we can start with a, a round of introductions. So if you guys want to introduce yourself, just your name, um, and maybe a little bit about how you're involved with the Pure Housing Support uh, program. So maybe... Okay, I'm Kay Martin, and I'm a Peer Housing Supporter for the Coalition to End Homelessness, and I'm a Peer Supporter. Uh, my name is Lisa. I work as a peer supporter with the Peer Housing Support Program. Um, I started in September 2017 and came on with the development of the initial um, framework before it was put out into the community. So, yeah. Hi, I'm Janine Theobald. I'm the Community Outreach Manager with the Coalition to End Homelessness, and I came in March of 2018. So sometimes I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants in regard to my role with the program because they've done so much work in development. Although in the last, um, since I started, it went from development into implementation and community. Um, and it's been just amazing to support and watch the program flourish. I'm Tom Glockland. I'm also a peer supporter with the coalition. I've been with them for roughly four years now. Um, I've been involved with uh, the development of the program, uh, the implementation, and so forth going onward. Mm-hmm. It's a long time, four years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the development? Like, why did the Peer Housing Support Program come into play in the first place? It was uh, deemed by um, certain committees um, and action councils around the city that um, this was something that was missing um, in the programs that were being offered. And it was uh, thought that it would be an excellent idea to move forth with. Uh, developing a program and hopefully implementing it. And was it modeled after anything specific or did it come as a fresh start for the city? This is 100% a fresh start for the city. Mm. It's not new. Peer support's not really super new, but it is new within the country for certain social services. So I would say that this Mm. is somewhat a first um, it is based on some other uh, peer support program, programs like the, the veterans 
uh, peer support program. You know, there was a lot of it that we took from that. But uh, other than that, this is pretty much 100% new. Yeah, when we sat down to do the development in September of 2017, there was a team of three of us at the time and a team lead supervisor. And um, we were going off of the information that had been previously developed by the Peer Housing Support Advisory Committee, which Ty was a member of at the time. And um, we basically sat there and went, well, what are we doing? I don't know. How are we going to do this? I don't know. <laughs> so it was kind of completely a blank slate, but with like the main goal of providing peer support to ensure that people can have stability and safe and stable housing in their lives. And so when we started doing the research um, into models that already existed in North America, what we found is that there really hasn't been anything up until now that's been done in the actual housing um, area of peer support. So like Ty was saying, we took what we could from veterans and also from mental health um, programs and services that exist in terms of peer support but everything has sort of been created as we go along and it's been a lot of trial and error in the pilot process as well so yeah the committee um, that identified this gap in service provision was um, a committee of people with lived experience and the um, advisory committee is also made up of people with lived experience or expertise, as you will. Um, and I just think that's a really important component of it to know that it's generated from that perspective mm -hmm. um, and really tailored in that way. So I just wanted to throw that little bit in there as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Could you give us an overview of um, how the program works and the different elements of the peer support program as it's running today? Basically, we have eight hours a week allotted to us individually to conduct our peer support work and that includes any administrative work that we need to do as well as a two-hour community of practice meeting for ourselves as a team um, each week so um, there's been a little bit of like learning in terms of time allotted towards peer support because what I've been finding personally with my peers is that the benefit of this program is that we are able to spend a little bit more time with each individual rather than the normative structured one hour meeting time that's usually allotted for a client and a worker in social services so um, it all depends on need like I've got some people who like to meet only for half an hour, sometimes to an hour tops. And then I've had some people some weeks who are needing up to like two hours, just depending on what's going on. So, yeah. And what does that look like? Like what, what in half an hour, an hour, what would you say you're doing with them during the week? Um, for the people I've been working with, it's maybe been a little bit different than the other peer supporters on the team because I I have a vehicle so I'm able to help people with getting to medical appointments, counseling appointments, um, grocery shopping or other household shopping um, in terms of like transporting things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to very easily. Um, even 
going for a drive up to Willows Beach and spending some time up at the beach. I work with someone who is visually impaired and so he doesn't feel safe walking around the downtown core on his own as well as he's also in recovery with alcoholism so he doesn't like to be in an environment which triggers him but he's forced to live in the downtown core because that's the rent that he can afford. Um, so part of maintaining him in safe and stable housing is ensuring that I give him time each week to get out of the downtown core environment and I take him to other neighborhoods so that he can have a little bit of a breather <laughs> from anything that might trigger him and it's been really effective that way. Okay, your Ty, what would you say your hour or half hour working with peers looks like? Um, somewhat similar, a little different because I don't have a vehicle, but um, I do. We do have a cab car program that was provided. So I mean, it, if it comes up, it's it's always there. Uh, most times, not. It's usually just uh, times to sit down and discuss and uh, either make plans or, or or just touch base with someone. You know, make them feel um, like someone's listening. Something's a little different year than they get from either their social services worker or someone who works in cash or someone that can you know maybe hit them on a different uh, personable a personal level um, but it's generally just supportive I mean I've done shopping uh, I've uh, helped pack and move uh, you know a lot of coffees stuff like that you know. just generally supportive mm -hmm. Yeah, same with my peers. Um, it's a lot of social support, a lot of help with isolation and getting out. Um, also, as well as practical stuff like the grocery shopping and any type of errands, chores. Um, I've also done a little bit of crisis management with one of my peers. and But a lot of it is the social part of it and the breaking the isolation and getting back into community. And is that, it's market rent or supportive housing, is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. So if someone needed to get a hold of you, you said crisis management, would that be like a text or a call or how can, how do people communicate with you? To we say each have a cell phone. Oh, okay. Yeah, for work. Um, so that was initiated originally as a safety um, aspect to our own personal safety when those discussions came up in the program development. But it's also allowed us to have the freedom to be able to communicate one-on-one -on -one more easily with our peers um, because technically we're on call basically as, the way it's laid out right now is that we're basically like on-call contract workers um, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So we can work during times outside of the Monday to Friday, nine to five. And so we can book those times through text or phone calls with our peers on our own. We don't need to be in an office to do that, or we don't need to have a supervisor to do that for us. So it also provides the support for our peers to be able to have um, the knowledge that they can reach out to us at any time that they would like to as well. I imagine that would feel really good knowing they could reach out at any time mm -hmm. rather than Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 kind of thing. Yeah. I think that was especially helpful over Christmas because Christmas yeah. can be a difficult time and our peers were still able to contact us when a lot of other places would be closed and their workers are not working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. 
Yeah, and it probably helps a lot building that personal relationship, like that supportive relationship that you were talking about as well. It's key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very key. I'm just thinking for listeners who yeah. are not, like maybe they're listening in Ontario and they're wanting to implement a similar program. Can you talk any more about the program and like just the layout and sort of the framework of maybe what it looks like? Well, I think one of the, so there's a few foundational pieces that are key to the success and one is the um, in, involvement and leadership of lived experience at all levels of um, development. Um, and then the other is strong partnerships and communication. So uh, we've just been in a pilot phase for the last year and um, now I guess we're in program phase and we're still working out some of the lessons learned and uh, you know trying to continue to work on the, the strengths and, and uh, fill in the gaps. Um, so as it, once the program had been de- developed and the staff had been trained, and I wasn't here for that initial de- uh, development of the partnership piece, but um, create a partnership with a housing um, provider is where um, peers come into the program. So um, we're, right now we're with, uh, partnered with Pacifica and Our Place Society. So they would have housing support staff who would um, be advised of the program and uh, they have some, they might identify someone as a good candidate for the program. And then they, I would receive some forms through their manager and then would come to the peer support community of practice meeting, which we can talk a little bit more about as well because that's a really important part of the program. Um, at that time, the peer is then matched um, with the most appropriate or what we can assess from the information uh, peer supporter. And then um, from there, there's an initial meeting between, so that's, I, I'm very hands off. I don't actually engage with the peers or the housing support workers directly. I work with the management team at um, whatever the housing provider is. And then from there, once the information's been passed and the peer supporter's been assigned, the peer supporter takes the lead, connects with the housing support worker and the peer. They have a, a three-way meeting to just sort of check in, make sure it's a good fit. They can speak more a little bit about that, what that looks like, because I've never seen one of those meetings. Sign any forms that need to be signed and, and so on and so forth. And then from there, it's a peer-led relationship um, outside of the housing. So it's the, the peer supporter and the peer uh, work in community, whether that's at their residence or at the outings that are discussed, it's very much tailored to each person's um, desires, needs, um, and that's, so that's a bit of the, the structure of the framework. Uh, currently we're supported through grant funding. Um, I would definitely recommend if you're starting a program to um, look at a longer term grant funding um, because that just keeps uh, some of the security for the program and recognize sometimes a little bit more startup cost at the beginning. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it for now. In terms, you're kind of uh, speaking long term. In terms of the uh, the length of the relationships, are those sort of ongoing, or or is there sort of a set time frame for those up front? No, <clears throat> their relationships are ongoing. Yeah, and there have been a couple of instances where relationships have had to be dissolved. Mm-hmm. Um, because of various boundary issues that have come up basically is what it comes down to but um, we went through a training program as peer supporters at the beginning of the pilot phase and so we had a whole component on 
um, addressing boundary issues and communication um, skills. And so um, that's that's where Janine comes in as a support for us when needed. Um, Because like with myself personally, when I had to dissolve one of my peer relationships a few weeks after it started, um, I was able to connect with Janine immediately and let her know what the situation was. It was not resolvable. And so then it was dissolved outside of my having to communicate with the peer again. Mm-hmm. So it's set up in a way that keeps ourselves very safe and keeps the people that we're working with very safe because we have support from Janine as peer supporters and our peers also have that same type of support from their housing outreach advocate worker um, on the other side and we can also communicate with the housing outreach workers too like just being in a small community we see them um, quite often anyway I think Mm -hmm. so and just to clarify all of the peers are being referred in through the partner agency Um, there's no sort of outside referrals at this point not at this time. Not at this point. Yeah. And how that was set up in the beginning was um, around like October, November of 2017, shortly after we started on the program development and the framework. Um, we approached all of the housing service providers individually in Greater Victoria and we set up meetings with them to present the program and what it was going to be about and to see who was interested in signing on. So that was a really good way to get the word out there Mm -hmm. to the housing service providers and to make them aware of the fact that this program was coming into the community and also to gauge like a stakeholder interest. Mm -hmm. And so um, even the the people who weren't necessarily interested at the very beginning once the program started getting out in the pilot phase now we've started making those connections so um if someone was wanting to start up the program i would just say don't lose hope and don't get burdened down by hearing no we're not interested at first because once it's like people need to see it happening to believe that it is worthwhile investing in in some cases i think and so just keep plugging away at it and it'll come around. What sort of commitment are you asking um, partner agencies as they're coming on board and being part of the program? Just to identify peers who they are working with or clients to them, I suppose, who they're working with who would be good candidates for the program. And so actually it's not so much as an investment on the service providers or their outreach workers. What has happened with us working as peer supporters with the peers that we're working with is that it's actually taken some of the workload off of those outreach workers Mm -hmm. because these people who they've identified um, may be high need or need extra time, Mm -hmm. which workers may not necessarily be able to provide. And so it's actually served to lighten their load is the feedback that I've been receiving. So it, yeah, it's, I don't really see it as so much of an investment in terms of like time or energy on their part, Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe just an investment in them 
being proponents of the program itself and helping to get the word out in the community. Yeah, yeah I don't actually, you know, Chris made a joke about that at the, the meeting that we actually don't interact as often. So he would he'd be the, the signer on there, the, the manager that, um, the managers that I work with in partnering agencies. And kind of once that initial um, matching form has come in and the introductions have been made, it's it's really in the it's really in the hands of the peer supporter and the peer, um, which is great. I mean, there's little nuances sometimes that we need to check in and, and work through, um, and some of those refinements are going to be coming along in the next few months as we go into our second second year. Some lessons learned, as I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. um, and another thing too is um, the the feedback. You know, there's because of the peer and peer supporter relationship that's happening in community. Sometimes those. Um, very often housing support workers, I'm not trying to generalize, but we'll be, you know, kind of moving through crisis um, to crisis depending on the circumstances, but because of the stability in the relationship, um, often um, sometimes those crises are being um, supported by the peer support worker, sometimes they're just being averted in general because there's someone to bounce off, to send that text to, to, to check in in that, um, in that trusted, connected way. Backing up a bit, Janine, you were mentioning the matching between peer supporter and peer. Can you walk us through how you guys match and what makes a good match or what you found sort of our lessons learned coming out of matching up with peers? So they might identify um, something that they might want to work on or perhaps they were in recovery or if they would prefer um, a peer support worker who I, or a peer support worker who identifies as indigenous or female, male. So there's a, some of those kind of general um, uh, pieces of information that we have to work with and then might have written a little blurb about themselves and something that they might be interested in. So that's kind of the initial information had to make that decision and sometimes it's based on um, the number of uh, peers that somebody has for you know if somebody's full then that might mean that it will go to someone else so nobody's guaranteed mm-hmm. to get those items that they're choosing from in that so that's that initial period of, of matching um, one of the things maybe Lisa you might want to speak to it a little bit <laughs> is about how to ensure that, you know, the, the match is a good match and that people are feeling safe and able to participate um, to the with the person that they want to. And Lisa, I'm... Oh, I was just going to mention about how when we first started, um, I feel a little bit like because we're just getting things off the ground, um, we sort of didn't pay much attention to who we were being matched with other than what the request of the peer was on the intake form um, to be matched in terms of a peer supporter, like as Janine was saying with Indigenous backgrounds or gender, things like that. Um, It was kind of like, let's just get out there and get this going and start working with people because we can't really figure this out until we start doing it in a certain way. But um, also being someone with a history of homelessness in this region and now working as a peer supporter in this region um, with people who have experiences of homelessness, um, this is a small city and there aren't very many people who I don't know personally. So one thing that I've learned through this experience is that 
there really needs to be a discussion if someone because I'm not always recognizing people by the name on a piece of paper and they don't have their photo attached to the intake form or anything like that so you really don't know who you're meeting until you get to that intake meeting with the peer and the housing outreach worker so um, there's been two times for me now out of the four or five people that I've been matched with so far who I have a personal history with on some level. One of those relationships had to be dissolved because of the fact that it was too personal. So we had addressed that at the beginning and and we had agreed to work through that, but it just wasn't possible. So that's one word of caution that I would throw out there is just to be aware of those boundaries and to address those and have open communication about it because um, it's not impossible to work with someone that you know personally in a peer support role, um, which takes it to the peer support realm outside of um, a traditional helping professional role where if um, someone was personally involved with an individual that they would be bound by the ethics of their professional um, guidelines not to engage in a helping um, role with that person. But I believe in, in the peer support realm, that's where it becomes a bit of a gray area. And so it's really important to have those boundaries set and that open communication Um, Because I am currently working with someone now who I did have a personal history with years ago when I was um, still experiencing homelessness and just coming into my recovery. Um, Didn't have any contact with them for several years and now I'm working with him and everything is going just fine. So it is possible to have those relationships and I just wanted to put that out there too. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. It adds a level of complexity when um, you have that personal history. And like you said, if there's no mm-hmm. photo attached to the, mm-hmm. yeah. the intake <laughs> forms, that's interesting. And it also helps to uh, where a lot of workers struggle with building trust and rapport with mm-hmm. their clients. Um, even having a bit of a personal history with someone or just being aware of the fact that we all come from a place of lived experience we don't really struggle with having to worry about breaking down that trust and rapport barrier. And that's a barrier that some workers struggle with, with Mm -hmm. people for years sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we can have that barrier down within minutes just Mm -hmm. because of our lived experience. So, and that's whether you have a previous relationship or history with that person or not. Yeah. Or not. It's just based on lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And another mechanism um, that we'll be looking to add um, as we have new matches come on board is something that was brought forth in regard to um, making a a space for both the peer supporter to connect with me and then the peer to connect with their housing support workers to do like a really structured check-in about how the relationship is developing and and how um, if they want to continue to work with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lisa actually brought this to my attention in a really valuable way. And, you know, I'm a person with uh, some lived experience of accessing services in different ways. And, and you get assigned a worker. And sometimes that worker comes and goes uh, because of employment turnover or what have you. But you don't really get an option or a choice in that. And 
this way provides that kind of just that last catchment piece to ensure that the service is really what we'll use the word client-based or peer-based in the sense that they have an opportunity to say you know I'm not just not sure that it's really like in a, in a like a really formalized way to make sure they have permission to say you know what I think I need to try somebody else mm-hmm. or that's going awesome which is uh, more more than likely what we'll hear <laughs> I think so <laughs> but well, but yeah. I take your point that um, and then those people wouldn't necessarily be um, wouldn't necessarily leave the program they would be reassigned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and rather yeah. than an, an, an issues-based situation or, mm-hmm. a, you know, it's like in, a, in an intentional way within a certain, you know, six to six weeks to two months of being in the, in the service of the program and just sort of, you know, really just opening that space to mm-hmm. have that freedom to assess in a way that um, yeah, isn't going to be prohibitive of them of remaining in the program. So yeah. It creates more safety for people who are very vulnerable um, because... Um, when someone is accessing services and just thinking back to when I was as well as what Janine was speaking to um, I still access services I'm not completely out of the system that way Um, but sometimes we're made to feel in going up against the system or knocking on doors or asking for help that we need to just accept what's given to us at face value and ask no questions or don't provide any feedback because if we say that we don't like something or something isn't working well that there's this underlying fear that it's going to be taken away from us and so um, that is what it really plays into is like the only way that a person is going to succeed in becoming stably housed in this case in terms of this program and feeling stable and successful in their lives is if they can begin to heal those areas of vulnerability and so giving people choices like that is what helps them to feel safe and empowered and empowerment is one of the core values of our program Um, you know helping our peers to become personally empowered within themselves Mm -hmm. and so we don't work as advocates for our peers but we help to um, instill that value within to the relationship so that they can learn how to advocate for themselves. So on that note do you have a success story of one peer that you could share not not naming any names or anything? Um, my peer that's had successes, one of the things that he had mentioned that pointed out that really struck with me was that he felt like he was heard for the first time. And I think that's really important because we're peers, people can feel heard and they can feel like they can openly and safely speak. Uh, <clears throat> he expressed how invaluable peer support had been to him and how the confidence had helped him to move forward in his life as far as getting a job and getting a girlfriend and just getting out there and socializing and being part of the community. And he attributes that to peer support. Hmm. That's great. How do you see the peer housing support program preventing homelessness or housing instability? Yeah. Uh, well, again, it, it as we've been discussing, it, it, it allows for more options. Um, so to uh, break down barriers and fill in gaps makes it a little easier for people to access resources staying housed 
because they, you know, they're not initially just dealing with one worker. Uh, they also have someone to support them through either crisis management or helping them out with stuff, keeping them structured, keeping them social, keeping them in the community. That generally is just, you know, it's about good mental health, um, which will lead to, you know, better life choices. In essence, it's not going to solve the problem, but it, it definitely doesn't attribute to it. Um, it it'll just, just a support, a support for people that really need it. You know, at, at that time in, in your life while you're struggling with either addictions or homelessness or mental health issues, um, any kind of support you can get is, is, is needed. I mean, not one of them could you say that's the answer. You know, so um, it is a combination of, of them all being implemented well um, over a large scope where everyone is communicating it and pushing, you know, the same ideals or values and, and helping in the same regard where one isn't closing a door and one's trying to open it. Open it. I mean, the doors are always open throughout the whole programming phase of whatever is implemented. But that's to me is what the key is that the more options you have, uh, the better chances are of success and, and a person maintaining housing, mm -hmm. you know, because, um, like I said, when those things um, hit you, there's strong barriers, mental health, addiction, um, and, you know, your prior experiences with homelessness or the system itself. Those all lead back to people being, you know, it's a systemic, systemic issue, you know, where it's the system it just keeps pushing people through it, pushing people through it, where they don't actually address the individual's problems. You know, they get lettered as A, B, C, or D, and if you don't fall into these categories, you don't get said supports or you don't feel supported. So in this way, it's just a non-judgmental, very supportive approach to just maintaining good mental health. It comes in at the point of addressing isolation too when people are first housed because um, quite often when people talk about solving the problem of homelessness, as um, Janine is uh, working towards changing the language and the philosophy behind that too and saying that homelessness is not the problem, the system is the problem and homelessness is a symptom of that problem but um, just for the sake of this part of the discussion saying solving the problem of homelessness traditionally housing someone has been seen as the end point but for someone who has been living in the street community or living with experiences of homelessness for years and years some people have been out on the street here for over 25-30 years um, ha taking that person and putting them into a home where they do not have experience with being housed, they have now been taken away from everything that is familiar to them, everything that is part of their daily routine in the street community, um, away from their friends and their family, um, because our street community is our family and we have a culture out there and I think that's really important to understand. Um, it's one of the most lonely and isolating experiences and it's very dichotomous in nature and 
a person almost doesn't know how to act when they're being housed because you have all of these support workers around you on the day of being housed or leading up to it going, oh, isn't this awesome? This is great. This is going to be the best thing that's ever happened for you. And inside you're going, yeah, but I'm about to lose this, 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 and that. In my case, I had to leave my husband behind. He's still out there on the street. I had to leave my marriage behind so that I could be housed. So, you know, it's a major transition for a lot of people, and it's, it's, um, it puts people into a grieving period in some ways. So while you're being told that this is something to celebrate, it doesn't necessarily feel like something to celebrate for a lot of people. But you know that it's something that is good for you. So when I was first placed into housing after my longest time of being um, homeless, uh, I didn't spend any time in that house for the first year. I was still outside on the street. I would go there to shower, change clothes, occasionally cook some food, but I was still sleeping outside for the most part and hanging out outside because that's where all my friends and family were. So where we come in for people is in that realm in addressing the isolation, and that's one of the main aspects of um, what has come to be known as cyclical homelessness in terms of when the housing first policy was brought in, that was great. It got everyone housed, but there wasn't the supports there um, necessarily to help people to stay housed or to even understand why they wouldn't want to be. A lot of people are housed in places where they're not allowed to have their family come and visit them or friends, or they're limited to the number of guests or how many guests they can have each week for how many hours. And it can um, represent a little bit of a jail uh, mentality or prison mentality for a lot of people. So there's that part of it too. So those are those are important um, pieces of where we can come in and basically we're like a network of people with lived experience because when we're working as peer supporters with our peers we're networking on how to go through recovery uh, with homelessness go through recovery with whatever other aspects mental illnesses like Ty was saying or um, addictions possibly um, if we have a history with that but you know like organizations network with each other but it's basically like we're networking with each other as lived experience because we've navigated the system so we might have tips or tricks for people or something that worked for us that we can share to help to make their journey a bit easier and one thing that has really struck me working with my peers is that they have also had that information to share with me. I've had peers that I've been working with in the last few months teach me things about um, navigating the system or resources that are available in the community that I might not have known about. And so it's a shared experience and we really help each other in that way. Can you all talk about um, coming together as peer supporters? How many peer supporters are there, first of all? There's four, <clears throat> there's four of us on the team. Four of us. Okay. Yes. And we come together every week for a community of practice, which is a two-hour-long session where we discuss what's happening with our peers, where we're at in the development of the program, any th 
you know, any issues that might come up. And once a month we have what we call a community of learning where we um, meet with a counselor and she helps us work through some of the issues. It's been really good for teaching us uh, new tools, mm-hmm. you know, to come from someone with a, a strong professional background in, in counseling, you know, when it comes to mental health and addictions and stuff like that. Um, to have uh, new tools to use when it comes to uh, certain situations that come up. I think an important part of it is that we are a really close supportive team and we all stand behind each other and support each other. And not just in in our professional work, but in our personal lives as well. Okay, so just before wrapping up here, um, did you want to talk about any more lessons learned just for folks who are looking to implement a similar program? Um, well, earlier, as I was saying, definitely um, look for longer-term uh, instability in the funding. Um, but I think it's really important that um, the managers and supervisors of the program uh, do everything they can to practice an open-door policy and make sure that uh, staff are able to you know, come in and speak with you whenever they need to. Um, and, uh, and I think that's just been a lesson of learned that has been good policy, um, and I would say recommend to continue with that. And also just really supporting to success recognizing that for some staff um, having, you know, this may be their first employment opportunity um, since having um, experienced homelessness and just creating that space to, you know, um, develop and grow into that um, professional role um, is really important. So um, just making making a space for that development and support and, uh, yeah. That's great. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, for people who are listening, I guess what would your call to action be for someone who wants to support the program and the work that you're doing? I'm just going to jump right on that and say embed peer support as an operational uh, piece of whether you're providing a service, housing, um, in community. Just get that going right away because mm-hmm. it will amplify and um, exponentially grow success. I was just going to say, how many calls to action do we get? (laughs) Go for it, Lisa. (laughs) Um, uh, Kind of um, goes hand in hand with what Janine is saying, but um, I think it's really important to begin to address the hidden boundaries that keep people with lived experience who are wanting to um, gain employment in the social services field. Um, There are hidden boundaries that exist for us and there is a certain level of stigma that um, we go up against in the community. And um, so I think it's really important to recognize that Peer support is not some sort of fluffy add-on, making people feel good about the work we're doing. It is actually a requirement and it's essential to the work that we're doing to support people in recovery. There are many people in recovery who don't even want to work with professionals because they don't have lived experience. And so that's a barrier right there. And I hear that from people who are in recovery a lot of the time. 
who may not necessarily feel comfortable saying that, but that's the truth. <laughs> so it is not, it's not an add-on to a program or a service. It should be an essential aspect of a program or a service in some capacity and long-term. I would like to say that I would like to see a peer support organization actually embedded into the services in this region, like an actual agency that people can go in to receive peer support of various kinds. So that would be a call to action. Just a point of clarity, I want to describe that we're talking about, um, you know, we're, there's all kinds of recovery involved um, in, for different aspects, but we're talking about the recovery from the experience of homelessness. I don't know if that was clear. Okay, thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Thank you. Our kind of wrap-up question that we like to ask everyone is, what does home mean to you? And I'd love to hear from everybody if you have, um, if you'd like to share. Well, home is where the heart is. Mm-hmm. It's usually, hopefully, where family is too, um, or where a person can feel supported, uh, supported or safe. And um, that's generally what we look for in our home, you know, safety and some sort of comfort. Um, both those two things are very hard to find living on the street. Um, so home to me is, uh, is, you know, safety and, um, where I go to relax, you know, it's where you find your comfort. Home for me is, um, somewhere to feel stable, secure, and safe, and also somewhere to feel like you belong. So you can come in at the end of your day and just feel like this is home. Home to me is safety and artwork. My house is a massive art project, and also I wasn't able to start um, doing my art effectively and making a name for myself as an artist in the community until I had that roof over my head and a safe place to actually keep things to be able to create, So and also to have a safe um, quiet place to be able to do so when I needed it. Yeah. Yeah, home is love and refuge, safety, place to be silly or fall apart or, you know, re- rejuvenate and be able to just bring your best self out there in the world. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for the opportunity. Thanks as always to the Vancouver Foundation for supporting this podcast.